if you don't have good people around, and maybe you do have good people around, but they just max out to a certain point, mm -hmm. then you're going to have to then find more people who are aligned with what you're trying to do and the, the long-term plans of the business versus developing people internally who are already here. Welcome back to How I Built This, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Scottish tech companies and their successes. I'm Jack Stephen, and as always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Technology, Scottish technology recruitment experts. On today's episode, I'm joined by Callum Murray, the CEO and founder of Edinburgh Tech Scale-Up, Amicus. Over the last eight years, Amicus have been on a mission to make regulated services more accessible. They provide onboarding services for both staff and clients, and in 2022, were named the fastest growing tech business in Scotland. Callum, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Jack, for having me. Nice to be here. So normally on the, the podcast, I try and get people to whiz through their, their background within a minute or so. But having looked into your background in a, a little bit of detail, I feel like your kind of journey to starting Amicus um, is quite related. So yeah, I thought it'd be kind of worth going over in a bit more kind of detail. I actually forgot to mention to you off air that I grew up in Dunblane. So I know the, the Bridge of Allen and Stirling area quite well. I <laughs> right. noticed you, you studied in, in Stirling. How was your time there? It was fantastic. Good. Yeah, really, really enjoyed it. And yeah, stayed in various different places around about Bidjavalan and Causeway Head. Nice. Fubar was a regular on a Thursday night. I was going to say, I was going to mention Fubar, but yeah, I wasn't sure if it was called that back in the day. But um, <laughs> I, yeah, I've been there plenty of times. <laughs> but yeah, how was, um, I think it was business and entrepreneurship that you, you did there. Yeah, it was really useful i think part of university is the the coursework and you know whatever it is you're studying that's maybe a third of it and then the rest of it is actually learning from being around and doing stuff and whilst i was at sterling the i remember one of the parts of the course was there was a guy called frank uh, Gardner, who ran the program, another guy called Jovo Atelijevic. They were the two kind of lead people in the, the business and entrepreneurship thing, and they, they had various quirks about what they did. And one of the things that they had organised was getting together some later stage entrepreneurs or larger businesses and got them to come in and talk to the classes about what they had done and how they had done it. And I remember that there was a guy his name was David Molesdale and he ran Optical Express and that was years ago when they were just kicking off and growing and I remember thinking wow like there was a really good case study they had and part of it you know you go off to come up with different ideas and do different things um, and that was a big part of it as well like just thinking about what would we do how would we get something going there were various people who I met there um, as a result there was a little business park just behind the uni and you could get a space in there if you had an idea, a business idea, there was a guy called Alistair Gamick, who I'm sure he's probably still around Stirling. And he was the kind of innovation person, like the startup type person who was around and would connect us into uh, different things, different conferences and stuff that was going on. So met loads of folk, learned loads of stuff. Whilst I was there, set up the Muay Thai Boxing Club. So I was the, 
the founding president of the Stirling University Muay Thai Boxing Club. And uh, I think on, it was like week week one, I remember going in to see the president of the sport union be like, oh, I'm going to set up this club. And he was like, how many people do you think you're going to get? I don't know, maybe a couple hundred. He's like, if you get a couple hundred, you'll be the biggest sports club in the university. <laughs> like, as I, I think it's pretty popular. I think we'll be do well. There was a lot of health and safety stuff to go through, and we were in the Ganaki, which was at the time the sports centre. It was nothing like what it is now. It's a huge area for sport, and it's like a really big university for that. It still was back then, but the facilities were a bit different then. And <laughs> we went through all the health and safety stuff, got it all signed off, literally week one. Uh, if not week one and week two, somebody got kicked through a window. Oh, wow. and we smashed. They didn't <laughs> fall through the window, but we managed to smash a window in the, <laughs> the gymnasium, kind of like yoga studio, and thought, oh, God, this is not going to go well. Um, but we actually ended up, yeah, we ended up with, um, I think quickly we were the second or third largest um, sports club in the university, and we had various coaches that had come in externally to come along and run it. So I don't know if it's still running. Yeah. I would like to think it is. It's like a lasting legacy, but uh, that was an interesting part of the, the Stirling University journey. But they they let us get on and do stuff, and yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's quite impressive as well. I know that Stirling Uni have got a, a massive sport presence. Yeah, playing against them at uni and stuff like that, um, and just seeing the facilities now, it's something that they they're very kind of proud about. So yeah, um, definitely a huge investment. Sense. And even I remember back in the day in the library. Um, I used to usually work at night times usually and I, I get stuff done mm-hmm. and like my mum is a well, she's retired now but she was a health visitor and she was always in like health like a school nurse various different things like that and I remember when I was in maybe third year and uh, she came through to Stirling for a visit and uh, she brought a case of Red Bull she was like oh, I've got a present for you good <laughs> idea just because you like working late at night and I was like oh, I don't know if like me staying up all night drinking a case of Red Bull to do like assignments and stuff in the library. I don't know how healthy that is, but she's like, well, I know you work late at night. Um, but I remember being in that library and it was just brown and it was like old and carpet and like dusty. And now it's like this amazing, brand new, like huge facility. So there's been a lot of investment that's gone into the uni, obviously after the glory days when I was around yeah, no. us. Um, but yeah, various people who I met from like university still friends and see who are running or doing different things in, in business or, you know, cross paths. But uh, still in university was a great place to be um, and learned loads alongside the degree. I ended up getting a 2-1 in business or entrepreneurship. And then they'd leave and thinking, what am I going to do next? But at the time, Blackberries were around. Like, so the iPhone hadn't yet. I don't think the iPhone was out. So it must have been maybe 2004 or five, something like that. Yeah, that's what and, all the business people used to use. I know that my dad, I remember my dad always having a Blackberry because um, he had the, the uh, keyboard. keyboard on the, on the yeah. phone. And when I was at uni, I was working, I was doing loads of different things, but one of the jobs I did was I was working labouring on basically different sites. Someone would go away and buy a flat and it, they would do it up and then they would sell it quite quickly. That was a thing in the property market, probably you know, still is. And I thought when I was on the jobs, I was doing like basic stripping wallpaper, filling bags full of rubble, like basic stuff. 
and it seemed to me obvious that at the end of it, the joiner or whoever was organising it would do stuff, then the electricians would come in and rip holes in the walls, and then they would need the place plastered and painted. And it was usually, if that was done really well, and that was organised, it, it would go well, but typically that was like an afterthought. And people just wouldn't turn up. Customers would get annoyed, that type of thing. And I thought there's definitely an opportunity to do something a bit different here. And if we went for the higher end of the market, there's probably a business that you could build. We started off with, we've got like 100 flyers, and we went round a fancy housing estate and flyered it to say we'll come and paint your fence because we thought, really low risk, you can paint somebody's fence, like folk would probably pay for that. And if the fence is big enough and the house is big enough, they're not going to be painting it themselves. So we went out and did that and we've got some equipment to do it or figure out how to do it really quick through some spray stuff that we got. And then that's where we started and we went from that and then set up with the support of the Prince's Trust or Prince's Scottish Youth Business Trust, PSYBT, as it was then. And they had a little office in Grangemouth, which is like a little town with a big, massive petrochemical plant next to where I grew up in Bonus. <laughs> so we went to the Grangemouth office and said, oh, I've got this idea, here's what we're going to do, and here's why, and put together like a plan, what we were going to do. And we got a £1,000 from them to support the idea to get started. And it was basically could we differentiate what we were doing by delivering a good service, answer an email, interact with people by email using the Blackberries. People would always get a hold of us, turn up on time, do a good job, stick to the price that we set, all very basic things, but not a lot of people would do that. And then grew that to about maybe 10 or 12 people. And the basis of it was like other painters, decorators who were obviously well qualified and able to do it and then somebody to be able to do the admin and win the work, do all the quotes. And then we grew it from individuals like residential work. And then we got some routes to kind of scale it. We're thinking about how could we get repeatable work. And we started doing stuff for Farrell and Ball who make fancy paint wallpaper. And then once we built a relationship there, if you were going to buy paint from them, um, the people who worked in the shop in Glasgow or they would say, oh, here's a card. You should speak to these people. They'll do a good job. And there wasn't any informal setup. They just knew that if someone needed a recommendation, we would be a safe pair of hands. And we ended up picking up a lot of work through that. And then we repeated that process. Then we picked up a load of work on like hotels and bars, restaurants, that type of thing. And we started working more as a subcontractor for bigger companies. And then onto building sites and so on and so forth. And then the financial crash hit. And we were due a load of cash from a couple of much bigger companies who just didn't pay us. And we, in one case, went to the small claims court because it was less than 10 grand that they were due us. But still, when you're turning over two or 300 grand, 10 grand is a huge amount of cash, particularly from a cash flow point of view. And our overdraft was probably about 10 grand as well. So it was really important that, although it might seem like a trivial amount of money, in the grand scheme of things, actually, that was really important. And we went to court, went through the process. They didn't defend it. We got the piece of paper from the sheriff to say, yep, you drew this money back. They had folded the business. They were long gone. We were never getting that money back. But I was a bit naive to it and thought, you know, we hadn't done anything wrong. We should get the cash. 
And uh, from that experience, that led on to another one at the same time where we were due money and it was more money, much bigger contractor, and they went through an arbitration process, which is like an out-of-court thing that you'll go through and you won't actually go anywhere near the court process, but it's very similar. You need to you know, document what's happened. Typically, we'll be working with solicitors. It's expensive, takes time. And we just couldn't afford to go through it. So all of that at the same time meant that the business just wasn't viable anymore and we had to pull the plug. So um, everyone went through a redundancy selection process and we managed to keep going basically check to check. So we would get money in, say, the way that the cash flow worked. All of our people got paid on a Friday, but we would get paid 30, 60 or 90 days. So we're always trying to pick up that next bit of work, get that next job finished, get that check in the bank. That would pay the wages the next week. And I did that for about six months of trying to work our way through it. And then our accountant had said, look, this is just not viable. We're going to have to close it. And I can imagine um, it's quite stressful running a business <laughs> like that. When, oh, yeah. Like, it was. I think it definitely took a toll thinking back like on to my health and like how I was what I was able to do or not do it was just constantly I was working like six days seven days a week to try and get jobs done and try and get that next check-in keep everything going and you know keep all of the costs down to the absolute minimum make sure that we were getting things done but it just wasn't sustainable and everyone was made redundant everything was lost all of the equipment fans scaffolding all the stuff that we'd built up over time had to be sold, um, money paid back to HMRC, payment plans put in place um, for the bank, so on and so forth. And yeah, I went through that process. I was just after uni, so I was maybe like, I don't know, maybe 22, 23, wow. something like that. When, so I had graduated and I'd done that for a few years and then, yeah, it all went pop. <laughs> and I had moved back home with my mum and dad and then once everything was gone, had to start again and I had myself and an apprentice and my mum's Honda Jazz. So I was uh, I was bowling around in my mum's Honda Jazz with the seats folded down and a set of ladders like slid all the way through. And uh, yeah, that, that was it. I just accepted that this is what I was going to have to do to figure it all out. So we had maintained good relationships with all the residential clients and had said, look, we just don't have all the equipment. We're not going to be able to do your work as quickly still come and do it but it's going to take time do you want to wait and like nine out of ten of them said yeah it's fine we'll just wait and then we picked up various bits of work through doing that and i was then trying to transition out of that into actually solving the root cause of the problem for me which was if you're running a business how can you figure out how do you find the information that you need to make a good informed decision about solving a problem like if you need help and you want to get whether it's financial support or legal help, where do you go? How do you find out where that is? How much is it going to cost? What's your chance of success? What do you need to do? So that, to me, seemed like the, the big obvious thing that needed to be solved. Yeah. And you know, I had loads of privilege in the fact that I'm born here, I've grown up here, I speak the language, <laughs> um, I've been to university, so I've been educated, I've got friends who do various different things, so I've got a network. Still yeah. didn't know where to go. So you could imagine how much harder this would be for anyone else. So I had all of those things going in my favour, and I still 
catastrophically flamed out and failed. It was like a big mess. Aye. So if that was really hard for me, that must be really hard for loads of people. So that was yeah. the idea. Could we go away and actually figure this out? Um, and I was fortunate to then go back to the PSYBT, the Princess Scottish Youth Business Trust, and say, look, what do we do now? <laughs> like, yeah. I've, we were kind of on this trajectory of like upwards and to the right, oh, the fastest growing up, thousands of percent and all this. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it was like blew up. So they'd said, well, why don't you think about how you can bring the right expertise in? Because I wasn't a developer. Yeah. Have any background in natural language processing or algorithms or matching data or any of the stuff that we'd need to try and figure out? And they'd said, Oh, there's this guy who he's linked and knows someone else, knows someone else. They're based at Edinburgh Uni, and I didn't get the grades to go to Edinburgh Uni. Um, <laughs> so they're like, No, no, I'll go along and chat to Edinburgh University. They've got a, a fellowship program with the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Might be that this is of interest. So, got an in went along chatted to them and said what i want you to do and i must have just got on well with the guy and he'd said right i'll kind of be your sponsor and like let's put together an application so nice what we'd proposed was a year's fellowship sponsored by Edinburgh university looking at commercializing legal information mm -hmm. and how could you take publicly accessible information about case law or legislation and make that usable and valuable for people. So what I really meant was I got a salary for a year. So I got, I think it was like 30 grand I got paid. And it just meant that I could do less painting and have more time transitioning away because yeah. by this point I had moved, I was living in my mate's flat and I was paying him rent. So I was able to do some stuff, but it just gave a bit more security of having a job. So I was able to start doing that. And when I was doing it, I was still bobbing around in the Honda Jazz. <laughs> and I would have a suit carrier in the back. So if I was going to a meeting, you'd get changed or whatever. So I was yeah. transitioning bet between the two things. Living two different and lives. <laughs> yeah, these two, two totally different things that were going on. But people do like to try and put you in a box. So the, when, depending on whatever you're doing, you'll be like, oh, you are Jack. You are Jack the recruiter. Yeah. And you're like, well, yeah, I do loads of stuff as well as working at Cathcart right. but that's the same when I was doing painting it was like oh you are a painter like you can come and paint this stuff likewise when I was at the uni they're like oh you are a student like you, you know, a student can be a painter because a painter needs to go to college and get their ticket or their papers to be a painter so yeah. people tend to struggle when you, you do more than one thing and then when I was doing the stuff we ended up doing this data lab project and we were talking about machine learning and I was getting into the the background of what, how that all worked. And I, I remember doing this presentation at the Royal Society in London and there were all, all of the AI experts that were there. Yeah. But AI, like fundamentally, all of the stuff that's going on now about like large language models and people are like getting really excited about it, so it's an investment. But fundamentally, the technology and all the algorithms and stuff has been around since the 1950s. Like there's not really that much of a change. Yeah. The change is that the volumes of data and the data sets that you can build to build a smart system that's focused in a particular area is so much more powerful now because there's just so much more data that's available that yeah. you're not manually having to tag and deal with. But when I was getting into all of that, folk were like, what, like, how can you pot, you can't do that. Like there was almost this weird thing of like, you're not allowed to be an entrepreneur, uh, be a painter, not succeed in that and then come out and do someone else there's this weird thing going on yeah. 
people's brains don't really like this idea that you can <laughs> maybe do more than one thing. Uh-huh. But we transitioned from the data lab project that we were the first funded data lab project, which they're linked to Edinburgh University and looking at data science and AI, how you can commercialise that and working with academia and um the private sector so we were the first funded project that came out of the back of that mm-hmm. and then when we took that to law firms obviously you need somebody to pay for your product is, is it actually solving a problem yeah we thought that this would be able to drive leads for consumers who've got issues so if i was a consumer and i bought say i bought a car and the gearbox failed in it i would be able to go online find this thing and be like i bought this but what are my rights like what should i be able to do should i get my money back can i kind of dispute this what happens yeah and we thought that would then create lots of leads warm leads that would go to law firms they would be really interested because we were giving them repeatable business but what we found out when we spoke to them in more detail was that actually there's a lot of compliance and regulations that link towards taking on a new client in relation to anti-money laundering so rather than we thought the cost to acquire would be really low so we were giving them low um value or low cost leads high value they're qualified yeah but they were saying actually the cost to acquire a new client is really high because they need to collect documentation manually they need to corroborate information they need to go through all the money laundering processes and that's expensive and they didn't want to take on all these potential clients because they didn't have a way to manage it digitally so they said if you build that we'll buy it so we said okay we'll, we'll go and build that so that was the first step of how can you onboard with how can you get that first foot over the threshold with a lawyer with an accountant with a wealth manager with a financial advisor to get that help you need to do all this compliance stuff so we thought well if we can crack the compliance bit and make it really fast and easy repeatable for people to onboard into a service whether it's a lawyer or maybe it's an accountant whatever the, the scenario would be if we can do that that opens up this huge opportunity to then start delivering products and services digitally, which you couldn't otherwise do. It's taken a lot longer than we focused on the compliance stuff. We've been doing that now probably the best part of six years. We thought it would uh-huh. take six months and we would go <laughs> on and build the next product. But yeah. that challenge around like moving from product one to product two or chapter one to chapter two, it turns out is quite common. So we've gone all in on the the onboarding platform for now clients but as well as staff so that's the the kind of genesis story as to how we've got from oh I left uni and was doing painting and decorating and I know, it's how does that end up and <laughs> yeah bizarre like, very yeah. unusual but I think most of the time that's the case you not often somebody will just land on something and be like I'm going to do this thing and then they do it and it's like exactly that plan often there's twists and turns along the way it's been interesting that like the longevity of it as well that when we started there were so many occasions where we were like ah, this won't work for this reason that reason yeah found it very difficult to raise investment initially like because of this like backstory of hang on who's the cto you're, you're a painter like <laughs> what um you know that was that was a challenge to overcome where yeah like when you're thinking about from a credibility point of view how we were going to do it We've now been around in total for about eight years from mm-hmm. when we actually went to company's house and set up the company. It's probably been about four years, maybe four and a bit years since we've properly been on the market available with like a scalable product that you can buy and rely upon. 
And then in the last maybe two years, we've really started to get going. But over that period of time, there are so many people who've come and gone or businesses that haven't quite worked out or people who've like switched into doing something differently or someone who I met like ages and ages ago. And now like they, they'll reappear and you're like, oh yeah, like, I've not seen you for forever. Yeah. But I think just generally like the world is a very small place when you're doing stuff and like early stage technology and yeah. scaling a business. So you, you tend to meet a lot of people, but a lot of it will go full circle. People will move on and do different things, but yeah. um, Amicus has remained constant over that period. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it kind of, um, it made me think just recently to the, the last podcast is Selby from Testcard. Who I think yeah, I know Selby. Yeah. We used to work in the same oh, place. So we, we were in Seed House, uh-huh. which was an office space in Leith, which Callum Forsyth set up. He's now at Techstart, mm-hmm. which are a VC fund, which... Um, their LP is the Scottish government and prior to that so he set up that and when we were there the, we were a company so we, I was like the entrepreneur in residence we were a little bit further on and there was Selway and then Patrick from Stampede they do yeah. like email marketing platform for lots of hospitality he was in there and then Sarah from Pixie mm-hmm. they did an Instagram API scrape thing she's now at the BBC I bumped into her at Turin Fest I've not seen her for years yeah. then Rob Gelb who's now running loads of startup stuff. He's setting up a new thing in relation to kind of NFTs and shareable, it's like a gaming system thing he's doing. Um, But he's doing loads with like the early stage and startup community. He had Kindaba and they were in there as well. Robin Knox, who had Intelligent Point of Sale, who got bought by Izetl. And then Izetl got bought by PayPal. He was one of the investors in Seed House and, He's an investor in Amicus. They went on to do Boundary, which was an alarm system that didn't work out, and that's just more recently closed down. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of John Robertson who was in there. He did Drinkly. They were a drinks delivery and food stuff that they were doing. Yeah. Then like they were, were all in the same place. We're all in this office together. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Selby was working on a robot-based startup yeah, Ziva. that was looking at. I think it was yeah. Ziva, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's when I first um, met him. He, yeah, him and I can't remember his colleague, um, but yeah, Mike, Mike, that was it. Yeah, they yeah. were they were working on that. Um, I think they got a lot of good um, like BBC on um, representation and stuff, um, but yeah, just didn't quite get the commercial side of it. Yeah, it's so hard, Aye. and there were a bunch of people who were at that similar very early stage, and. You're, you're on this kind of treadmill of like PR and progressing things, getting things going and maybe getting a little bit of funding and maybe getting that first proof of concept. But getting it past that is really tough and it's like sticking at it. But again, knowing when it's not working out and when you can do something different or move on, like that's, that's a really difficult thing to do. Yeah, I think psychologically as well, for someone like going through that, I know how difficult it was for me at the time when it all went wrong. And it was all a big failure. Yeah. And you kinda get this feeling everyone around you's like, ah, I knew that wasn't gonna work out. Go and get a job. And um, that's kinda maybe people didn't feel like that and your close friends or family or obviously want to be supportive, but you would have this kind of undercurrent of uh just another one, another one bites the dust. Yeah. And it's so common, so it's very difficult for like a founder if you're like set on changing something, improving something, creating an impact, and that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Like, 
a really tough thing to do. I, I've heard that um, a few others who've they've gone the other way, where they've built something and they've sold it, mm-hmm. then it's probably not too dissimilar that this thing that you've worked on for so long, it's no longer yours. It doesn't yeah, exist anymore. It's been subsumed. <laughs> yeah, it's been subsumed into this massive entity, you know, and there's this feeling of loss or like it's completely different from the failure side of it. But from chatting to a few people who've been down that track and, and got to the exit, they've said, you know, it, it does it does feel a bit odd. But we're quite far away from from that end of it and I'd like to think we're now insulated to a good extent from the other side of it so yeah. we're eh, keeping on trucking but the point can overall but sell be like a small world I know <laughs> yeah I know it is yeah. and um, you kind of touched on it there the the kind of um, community within Scotland within tech I've I think I've been within it like four years now and it's changed so much just in them four years so I can imagine in, in eight years it's changed like massively what's it kind of been like it feels like the stuff that we were around in the very early stages are are now now going Mm. like so i remember um years ago must be like seven or eight years ago when scottish enterprise ran this thing about scaling up and they brought two people from the u.s over to it was based at sterling uni's um off-site kind of innovation center thing they've got mm-hmm. and they got i think like 10 or 15 companies to that and brian corcoran who runs turing fest was there he previously had run a startup and he was in the middle of doing that at the time like prior to getting turing fest going and like it's weird to think that turing fest didn't exist now it's massive oh, yeah, it's, it's like huge. a huge event it's like from attending things in Berlin or London or uh, West Coast of uh, America, wherever. Like, yeah. I've been at stuff all over. And at Turing Fest, like, absolutely is up there yeah. from a production quality level, speakers, like, attendance. It is, as an event for tech, it's like you would look at Slush in Finland or other ones, like, yeah, they're good, but they're just... A very on a par with what we're doing now at Turing Fest. Yeah. That just didn't exist eight years ago. The support and like ecosystem like Codebase was around eight years ago, but very, very early stage. Mm-hmm. Like just that's evolved massively to what it is now yeah. and taking over all of the activities that they now are supporting with TechScaler and aligned with that and all the stuff that um Anna Stewart and Mark Logan have done, mm-hmm. like from a an academic point of view, like getting the government on board and joining everything up like the the opportunity now and the, the ecosystem is so much in favor for you setting up and growing an early stage company there's so much knowledge that's available now yeah that you can get like it's all online you can go and read books do, do all that stuff but it's just far farther on than it was like eight years ago but uh-huh. the people are effectively the same folk who are around yeah so the people who are around doing stuff back then Typically, they are around now. So, Alistair Gunn would be a good example. He was at PA Consulting um, in Edinburgh, and he was the kind of tech or media tech telecoms, would probably like TMTs, the old school um, kind of angle that like law firms and think about how do you how do you bundle it. He mm-hmm. was in there doing that, and he was passed, or we were passed to him from Business Gateway. So we were Business Gateway Leith. My mate's flat 
was just around the corner and I went into this and gave you one day and I was like, oh, what can we do? Met this guy, John. He was like, oh, you should speak to Alistair. You know, and everyone knew one another. Oh, you should speak to this person. And Alistair's now running the Glasgow City Innovation District mm-hmm. and like bringing tech and loads of opportunities into Glasgow. So still around, it's just doing something different. Yeah. So you see like this evolution of things going on, but the ideas and how can you start and scale a business like you can do that in scotland really well yeah and it's now like we don't think of ourselves as a scottish business like we're based here mm-hmm. but we're a business that can scale globally it just so happens that yeah i've got a, a thick scottish accent depending where i am people kind of squint and really struggle to understand what i'm saying yeah. I, I will change that like <laughs> depending on the circumstances but yes i am from scotland but i wouldn't I didn't think of Amicus as a Scottish company. As a company, we're about 55 people Mm -hmm. spread across the UK, some people around the EU. And it just so happens that we were based, started from Edinburgh, but you can grow and scale into other places. Yeah. What I think has been really interesting to see over the last, probably just last couple of years, is a lot of companies are actually coming to Edinburgh now because it's a, a tech hub or Scotland in general. They've had offices down Bristol, London, but they're opening up a, a hub in Edinburgh. So that's been really good to see that it's doing so well that we're actually attracting companies to, to kind of come up come up here and, and set up here, which is which has been good. Um yeah. and fast forward with with Amicus, obviously twenty twenty two I think it was that you were kind of named the the fastest growing company in Scotland. That's obviously quite a big achievement after probably what six, seven years kind of getting to that stage. Looking back, we got absolutely slaughtered at the time <laughs> when we were talking about our growth. Like we set very ambitious plans. We mm-hmm. always have done, but the thought was we're gonna go further faster if we set an ambitious plan. And maybe we're not gonna meet it, but we're gonna be ambitious as to what we're gonna do. But in the grand scheme of things, you'll hear about um triple triple, double double double, um, and if you're going to do that, like from a starting point of a million um, or two, and you're going to two and triple to six, mm-hmm. six and triple to 18, 18 double to 36, you're on your way to a significant scale of a business. But when we were scaling, like we've doubled every year for five years, um, our revenue. But looking back to those years, like we weren't in a, it wasn't positive going to a board meeting. Um, I guess it was like, yeah. you're way behind where you should be. You can't sell anything. What are you doing? What are you going to do to improve this? How is this going to improve? And now we can look back historically and say, well, that might have been the case because we set a very high expectation, but we actually have grown and we've grown faster than anyone else. Yeah. So what were you talking about? <laughs> um, but in the UK, like for the, from a contextual point of view, when we did get that, I did wonder, I was like, we've not been growing that fast. So what's everybody else doing? Yeah. Like, how co- how can we possibly be the fast? And it's based on your revenue from a starting point year. So this was the Deloitte Fast 50 is the program that we went through. Mm-hmm. So they take it from a base year and there's a number that you need to be at that base year. Say it's like 250 grand or 500 grand for your base year. And then they take your revenue for every three after that. So mm-hmm. where are you at three years from there? And what's the percentage increase? And we were like 16,000 or... 1600 percent so 1600 something like that yeah and when i was looking at that i was thinking surely like i know some of the like the other companies i'm like surely they're doing more than that like 
surely there's somebody else <laughs> and there wasn't so when we looked at it in the UK and within the fintech bucket we were the fourth fastest in the UK wow. which was fantastic yeah. and then 20th fastest overall in the UK so across all sectors they entered the program obviously there could be some companies that just for whatever reason they didn't enter the program um, but that felt like it was a great kind of notch or like a line in the sand to be yeah. like we've always talked about scaling but scaling sustainably so there's a certain point that you get to where maybe you, you'll be familiar as well like when someone's hiring so many people yeah there's a there's a limit to that so i remember chatting to rob jones who was one of the co-founders at fanjo and i was chatting to him years ago when uh, fanjo was like absolutely flying they were just growing 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 yeah and I'd asked them how he'd managed to cope with the volume of people. And he said that they got to the point where they would onboard like 30, 40, 50 people in a sitting. They would put them in a room and they would do all of their onboarding together. And I thought, oh God, that surely there's a point where that just breaks. It doesn't work. Yeah. And say that's really tough, like for from a culture point of view and yeah. how do people get settled in. But when we went from, what are we, 25 people to 55, like that bit over the last year or so, that was really hard because there was so much going on. There were so many people to get familiar with what they were doing and structure and organizational management and, you know, adding in much more that we need to do to support our people. Yeah. That was tough. But when I look back on how did we get to the point that we we're the fastest growing, we'll be in it again this year. I would think if we're not the fastest this year, then we should be in the top three. There might be couple others mm -hmm. maybe when we won it and talked about it there was a few others like oh we need to get into that we've definitely <laughs> grown faster than amicus um i don't know but it's it's a pretty friendly thing i would say in scotland it's much more collaborative than it is competitive yeah so there's a, a whatsapp group that colin hewitt from float set up yeah. and it's scottish tech founders group 200 or 250 people in that and tech founders from i founded my business two weeks ago and i really early on to people who are like way 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 bigger and they're turning over like 50 million or there's not that many who are at that stage i was quite surprised that you, you get to a point in scotland where our next kind of inflection point is getting past 10 million in revenue once we've done that we then really shift the gear and get going mm -hmm. there's not that many tech companies in scotland who are at that point yeah. like they're all kind of a little bit below that mm -hmm. so i was looking around saying who should we be chatting to and talking to that's well past that but from the kind of early stage tech what's very common is you get to kind of the stage we run you just get bought yeah. and people just get acquired and for one reason or another it's a very personal thing there'll be loads of different reasons why that happens or you know the ambitions of people as to what they want to do or when's the right time for them that's very subjective to the business and the you know the economy what's going on overall but there's really not that many that continue to keep going yeah. but whilst they are there or whether maybe they've exited or whatever like i mentioned uh, robin knox and his co-founder paul yeah they did loads of stuff when they went through that um, acquisition or when they were acquired by iZettle. i remember i was in the office when it was all happening so learned loads just from being a fly on the wall yeah. and at one point when Isaiah were doing that. They had a target that they had to roll out to a certain number of European countries. Okay. And all of a sudden, like, all these flags started appearing in the office and people <laughs> speaking in different languages. And was like, all right, here's how you roll out to another country. Yeah. So people are around and they want to help. Yeah. And it's very open. So when someone's kind of stuck on a challenge that you've maybe been on before, 
you know, can have half an hour and just like run through like here's what we did. Might not be the right thing for their business, yeah, because it's so contextually dependent. But we could just share like here's what we thought about, here's what we did. Yeah. Maybe that will be a good thing for you to think about. And yeah, people are just generally open to share. So whilst we're growing, hopefully we want to set a good example that you can do that, but do good stuff along the way. Yeah. It's not at the expense of you know everything else. It's, for us, it's definitely not growth at all costs. Yeah. But can we sustain? Now it's more about doubling. Can we continue to double um, and do that in a way that doesn't mean that people are burning out and you know just can't cope? It should be that people can grow along with the business as well. Yeah. That definitely comes across when um, you have a look around the blogs and stuff on like that on the the website, um, the the couple of videos that I watched as well. It seems like the culture at Amicus it's all about like learning development. Yeah, that's obviously like must be a kind of massive focus for you. And I always kind of think the culture of a company comes kind of from the top down uh, originally. Is that something that you? it's just came kind of naturally to you or is it just yeah is it something that you tried to kind of implement or yeah how have you kind of gone about it i think in the past i've had loads of really bad experiences mm. of places i've been and like you know toxic culture re- really really difficult places to be Aye. um and knowing like these are the things you definitely don't want <laughs> this is this is what to model the kind of opposite so having been in that position before where you're like oh my god this is a shambles yeah. like this place is terrible um and you can't influence it you can't do anything now having the ability to do that and be like it can do that and we can allocate budget to these things and we should be looking after people and they should have the, the ability to develop it's ultimately if you don't have good people around and maybe you do have good people around but they just max out to a certain point mm-hmm. then you're gonna have to then find more people who are aligned with what you're trying to do and the the long-term plans of the business versus developing people internally who are already here and we've got we did a a recognition dinner um about a month ago so we get everyone together once a year now we used to do it quarterly then we did it six monthly now we do it annually and it's a day where we'll talk about the progress that we've made and maybe have an external speaker and we'll do like a fireside chat thing or people can ask questions and we'll go over various topics and we'll do a dinner um, and everyone will go out and when we're we're out this time round it was more it was more like a like a work like a kind of party or something than it was like a work <laughs> kind of oh we're all out for a work dinner and there's like 50 odd people there and you think it's quite a lot of folk if you were to go out for a meal and you were like, that's like a massive stag do. Like I couldn't even imagine like a 50 person stag or hen do. Uh, not quite that type of uh, vibe you could imagine, um, stag or a hen, but getting together all of the people who typically don't see each other yeah. that often. But we work predominantly remote. So we've got an office in Edinburgh and people can use office spaces like co-working spaces around wherever they are, but people are in Nottingham, Belfast, london cambridge like glasgow spread out all over yeah and we don't tend to see all one another a lot because we're predominantly remote but making sure that there's a a connection between teams so people have a relationship with whether they're working together very frequently or not mm-hmm. and then very intentionally trying to build that so 
the way that we work is part of it too. So all of our teams are cross-functional. We don't have, we're not set up. We did used to be an engineering team and a product team and a sales team and a marketing team and an ops team. That That's how we were to a point. Mm-hmm. And we changed that. So we've now got people working cross-functionally. So in, for example, um, acquisition and growth is a blend of different people who are doing different things, working together. We don't have it completely set up yet. Ideally, it should be between 10 to 12 people, completely different backgrounds, people of different levels of experience and doing different things. Mm. So for our kind of onboarding team, we've got engineers, we've got relationship managers, like onboarding managers, people who are doing very different aspects, but coming together to build things that are going to be helpful for our clients, get them onboarded, and they've got a very clear direction for the work that they are doing, and we'll measure that. We use the OKR framework to do it, but just thinking through how we structure and how we design things for our people so that it can be really clear that they can do their work and their work's having an impact and helping the company progress, but equally help them progress too. So we worked with Gail Cariego, who used to be a senior in Skyscanner. She was like... um, head of people or like chief people officer in Skyscanner yeah. quite a while ago and that was in relation to putting in a competency framework and putting in career progression tracks like an individual contributor track or a manager track and you don't need to manage people to progress you can be an expert in an area that's been another big thing where we've been moving more from like generalist roles to more specialist roles mm-hmm. and allowing people to to just focus on a very particular thing that they want to do. For some people, it can be tough too. So when oh, we had that recognition dinner that I was chatting about, which is part of the all hands, there was like 12 people there who've been with Amicus for five years or more. Mm-hmm. And they've seen this evolution from like where we've been to where we are now. And there's obviously lots more still to come. But that can be hard. Like if you're in an early stage company and things work in a certain way, and you're involved in all these decisions or you're aware of everything that's going on, then all of a sudden you're, you know, five or ten times the size, then you're not involved in all those decisions anymore and it's just not feasible to be doing all this work because you would be context switching between all these different projects. So it's not possible to, to do that. So trying to help people navigate their way through that and recognize that it's okay not to be involved in everything yeah. and to just specialize in one area like that's kind of what you need to do so it's it is well thought out and considered but it's really hard like the people getting all that stuff right we don't yeah. <laughs> we definitely don't get it right but we would always reflect on you know is something working how could we improve it the people who we have like they are smart and we should be understanding like what it is they're trying to do and what have we missed. Like you should be listening to them to know, um, is this the best way we could be doing this? But equally through coaching, mentoring, like other companies, like there's people around who can support with that. So like a good example of that would be um, Varun Nair, who used to run Two Big Years and they sold it to Facebook. He was in Facebook for like four or five years, whatever, came back and now he's got a new company but he ran an engineering teams of like hundreds of engineers. So our engineering managers can go and have a chat with him and be like, here, we've got this thing. What do we do for, I don't know, out of hours 
on call. Like, what, did you, what would you do for that at Facebook? And there will be different ways that they did that or Mons will do it in a different way. Loads yeah. of different companies do it differently. But there's people around and making sure that the decisions we make and the things that we do should have the people element of it come first. So, like, what's the impact? Like, maybe an example of that would be over COVID when we had a bit of pressure from um, external investors saying you need to furlough everyone, you just need to close down, it'll be fine, it'll come back. And we said, no, we're not going to do that because mm. it doesn't make any sense for us. We were working on an NHS project. We need to get it done. We've got money in the bank. We've got loads of work to do. We need to keep progressing. If we don't do that and we do shut down and furlough, like there'll be 10 other companies like us who'll be putting their foot in the pedal and they'll be going way faster. So yeah. we're, we're not going to do that. And for all your people, like people who are going off and they're being furloughed, like pretty anxiety ridden, sitting at home thinking, am I going to go back to work? Why have I been furloughed? Why not them? How have they done that? Yeah. And it just didn't make any sense. Yeah. So we'd say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep paying the people. Yeah, we paused all of our subscription. So all of our clients just, well, like, we don't have anything to do like for a short period of time. So we're just saying, that's fine. Just don't need to pay for it just now. We'll figure it out later. Then they all came back. Yeah. So that was maybe a, a people-related decision that we made that was definitely looking back the right thing to do. There'll yeah. be loads of things we've done that have been wrong that we've then subsequently had to go and fix. But that's kind of it. You need to be able to make the decision. You're always going to be operating with like limited information. You're never going to have all of the information you make, need to make a perfect decision. So we are just getting on with it and then adjusting as you go. That's typically how we do it. Yeah. No, it's funny that you said that. Um, we had a similar situation. Obviously, over COVID, not many companies were recruiting and most recruitment company, companies just put everybody on furlough. But our kind of directors decided to not do that. And they wanted us to really kind of make the time of it to try and build relationships. And obviously, within that time, you know you're not getting any business from it in the short term. But by actually still speaking to these people and showing that you're just trying to have a conversations with them when there's no sales to be had um it kind of builds more of a, a kind of relationship so again like your yourself it kind of worked well for us which was which is good and i know um tasha kind of touched on it on our, our pre-chat that you do like an engagement survey which i think yeah we do that as well like i, I think we do it yearly where you can feedback of what you think's kind of went wrong or, or what's been good. Um, so yeah, I think she was saying that that had a lot of good um, kind of responses, which is, has probably helped. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of it. Like listening, what are the things that people want? Cause we could come out and say, Oh, we're going to run a new thing and we're going to add in this benefit. And they're like completely pointless. Like I would rather have health insurance than why, why are you putting in a, I don't know, drinks fridge in the office <laughs> total waste of time yeah. so rather than us just coming up with ideas of like oh this will be great for everyone we just go and ask people like what is it that you value what is it that we could do that would make things better yeah and there's some things that they'll come up and um the four day working week was quite a popular thing that we popped up and we said well for us at the moment the stage that we're on for various different reasons that's not something we're going to be able to do well what we are doing what we have done all the way through is if there's someone who is working flexibly because they've got commitments looking after an elderly parent maybe it's a family member or maybe they're doing um 
home care for their kids or they've got school run or nursery, yeah, that's all completely flexible and we can figure out yeah. someone going to work for four days, you're going to compress your time, you know, how many hours are you you're doing in a week? Like all of those things are totally fine, but moving to a blanket, oh yeah, we're going to be in a four day working week. That was something that we said like that doesn't fit what we are doing at the moment. There are other companies that do that, but it's a bit of a trade off. So if you decide that that is the most important thing for you, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and there will be other companies that do that, but those other companies maybe don't do, like we do a day a month or 12 days a year of development time. And then we allocate a budget to that as well. So we do have an expectation that people need to develop and learn because if we've got 50 or 100 people who are just stuck where they're at and they're not progressing or learning and they're looking at what the, the market's doing, we're not going to progress a company either. So we need everyone to help and progress. But yeah. it could be that there are other companies that maybe offer different benefits or different things for different reasons. Again, it's just so contextually different that one thing will work for one place or the other. So whether the, the benefits that we offer, well, obviously, listen, there's sometimes we were not able to do stuff. Yeah. Um, but, but I would say most of the time it's making sure we can do what we can that's going to make life easier for people so they can do their best work and get on and enjoy it like that's a huge part of like i know your life is spent at work and making sure that we we're just not getting in the way and making that awkward or difficult for no reason yeah so if people are happy and they're at work and they're enjoying it they're going to do better work our clients are going to be happier there's a better outcome for everyone all around in general so when we do those surveys yeah we know what the industry benchmarks are and we're always above them but it's always striving for that next thing of like right so we add that benefit or we'd make that change or we make this improvement or we do something well, what we do next because there's always a next thing um, and it's not just resting upon oh we've we've done all that people stuff like that's never going to be said it's like yeah. people's the most important it's the most tricky bit to get right and um, so always measuring stuff and always looking to improve i think that's a, a really important point yeah good good and obviously you've had a lot of growth um over the last couple of years you kind of touched on it that you, you kind of want to to continue doubling what can we expect to kind of see from amicus over the next couple of years is it new products is it kind of just more steady growth or, or what's the the kind of plans well the, yeah, we're doing it, this stuff right now because it's the end of the financial year for us, end of July. So we're literally going to do the corporate plan and the finance plan and the hiring plan. <laughs> and there, there's a couple of kind of obvious things for us. We've now got about 500 or so clients and making sure that those 500 or so clients are absolutely delighted with the service that we provide them, that the service we give them is second to none and we solve the problems that they have end to end so we're not a point solution we don't do one little bit mm-hmm. but we're building a software platform and from a compliance perspective there, there's a lot that's going on whether that's having to take on a new staff member and manage digital right to work that's like a huge thing that we do for like government for local authorities for lots of the public sector but as well as for like larger companies and recruiters and rpo businesses so making sure that we solve the problem for our clients in relation to onboarding our staff end to end and making sure that we make that as simple and as effective as possible that that's going to be there from a near-term vision point of view like where we're aiming for as being the uk's most trusted compliance and onboarding platform and so that's we've got two years to have 
stepped back and said, are we the UK, the most trusted one in the UK? Mm-hmm. Does anyone know us? And the assumption we always work on is nobody knows who Amicus are, nobody knows that we exist, and we're hardly even here yet. We've earned our uh, the opportunity to be around, but we're very, very small in the grand scheme of things, and we've got a lot to do. So that's the, the very near-term bit of it. Other things you can expect to see popping up next for us is the capability to have a reusable staff passport. So we've been working on that for some time now. It's not yet live, but what's coming up means that you can do all of your pre-employment screening checks, referencing up to BPSS or BS7858, whatever standard you want. And the candidate then has a reusable branded wallet for them to reuse move that around from a passport point of view. So it's a big pain point for contractors going into financial services that have to do this disclosure and senior managers regime stuff again and again and again. And we can make that fast and easy and simple for people. So that's a really big bit that we're working on um, and progressing that forward. And then the other part is around the client side and the the anti-money laundering provision. So we're a strategic partner with ICAS and Lost Sight of Scotland and a few other people. And we've got a commitment there to make sure that we help companies meet their obligations to the highest standards in relation to anti-money laundering. So there's a lot of stuff going on there in relation to making sure that that's the, the case going forward. So we're a UK government accredited digital identity provider. And that means that we can proof someone's ID to the highest possible standard and apply that to lots of different scenarios. So what you would expect to happen is, say, Jack comes along, gets a new job, and then as when you get that new job, you would be able to save your stuff. And then from there, you would be able to plug in and access lots of other products and services because you've created a digital ID that can be reusable. The market's not quite got to that point yet, mm-hmm. so... There's not a general awareness amongst the public that you could create a digital ID and make it reusable. So that's what's kind of coming next, I would say. Good, good. Yeah, it seems like you're you're very much not slowing down and, and continuing wanting to, to progress, which is no, great to see. And um, sounds like there's a lot of exciting stuff coming. Um, where is best to keep up with everything? All the usual stuff on our Twitter is just at Amicus. And then on LinkedIn, you find us at Amicus. And then the, the marketing site is amicus.co. And it's amiqus.co. And you would find all that stuff there. And there's a load of people who are active across uh, LinkedIn sharing this. One thing that, that we're always thinking about is getting everything as, as up to date as we can. There's obviously lots of things going on. And yeah. uh, getting, getting the word out to the world is sometimes... Um, a little bit later down the track yeah good well thanks so much for your time Callum Um, it's been really interesting yeah thanks very much thanks for having me thanks very much for listening to How I Built This brought to you by Cathcart Technology Scotland's technology recruitment experts whatever platform you're listening on please click the follow button and share the podcast with anyone you think would be interested in listening if you're a tech leader in Scotland and want to share your story then please don't hesitate to get in touch If you work within the tech sector and are looking for a job or looking for some help growing your tech team, then please get in touch with me, Jack Stephen, or follow us on our socials, Cathcart Technology, or via our website, cathcarttechnology.com.